The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is BizBuzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in industry and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Yes, you are. Welcome to BizBuzz. Today's buzz, manufacturing, people versus robots. Ooh, that's a heavy question. Let's get started. Manufacturers are pushing automated processes into overdrive today. Why? They want to survive and do more than that. They want to thrive in our highly competitive global marketplace. The resulting systems evolution, yeah, they have systems, you know that, is creating new types of factory jobs that require special skills. So the question is, what will it take for labor, meaning human beings, to prevail and not have to give even more jobs to robots? The experts speak. I have a great panel packed house today. We have four. Let's kick it off. My first guest I'm going to welcome is Mike Yost. He's the president of MESA, M-E-S-A International. It's a global not-for-profit industry association. And he sent me the following quote. 20 years ago, information technology were holding, technologies were holding manufacturers back. Today, manufacturers are still looking to make sense out of the role of modern IT-based solutions. I don't know if you're with them or against them. Mike Yost, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to me about this quote. How far have manufacturers come? Do they they get IT? It sounds to me like they do, but are they resisting? <laughs> Give us a little background, Mike. Yeah, well, um, with the quote basically what I was driving at is that um, we sort of Im- embedded some thinking and some behavior in the manufacturers years ago by having blue screens of death and um, communications problems and, and uh, technology leaks and all sorts of uh, technology reasons that uh, left manufacturers a little bit scared to jump and adopt and be on the leading edge of technology in their manufacturing operations. So that sort of created a mindset that will take a wait-and-see attitude until these technologies are, are, uh, are better capable. And where we are today is we don't have those technology challenges today. The technology has leapfrogged, and it's not holding manufacturers back. In fact, it's to the other side where it's actually pulling manufacturers forward at a pace that they're not comfortable with, that it's, that it's almost too fast now. So we still have a lot of the same uh, issues of, of people taking a wait-and-see attitude, uh, trying to make sense out of the role of, of IT in, in their manufacturing operations. But I would say it's, because, it's for the opposite reason today than it was two decades ago. 
Very interesting. So they were ready. They stepped up. They embraced it, and now it's barreling ahead, and they're saying, wait a minute, a little fast. Okay, good perspective. Thanks for kicking this off, Mike. Let's talk to your fellow panelist, Bob Parker, return guest on the show. It's been a while, Bob. Bob is a group VP at IDC, and he sent me the following quote. The manufacturing industry is facing a productivity imperative. An investment in scalable automation will go into overdrive, there's our keyword today, over the next few years. Bob Parker, welcome. How are you? Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure. Talk to me about your quote. What is this productivity imperative? Does it have to do with what I mentioned in the beginning, the highly competitive global marketplace? It does to a large extent. Um, we you often use very famous graphic that plots um, U.S. manufacturing productivity versus U.S. manufacturing wages from World War II on. And around 1980, uh, we see a divergent where the productivity continues to increase while the wages flatten out. And I often point people to uh, 1980 Time magazine cover story, actually much in line with your People versus Robots theme, called mm-hmm. The Robot Revolution. Uh, and there was a lot of kind of scare tactics in that article about, you know, losing all these jobs. Uh, but the fact is I think the industry stopped calling them robots and started calling it automation, and you do see the productivity tick up. And then about the mid-'90s, the slope of that productivity curve ticks up again, uh, probably largely driven for a number of factors, uh, chief among them investment in business systems uh, like our friends uh, at, 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 at SAP uh, and other enterprise software. And now we're at a point where what the economist calls the third industrial revolution, where much more flexible automation comes into play. So if you think about we've gone from the low gear with around 1980 to the high gears in the mid-90s. We're now in overdrive uh, to keep the the analogy going. Uh, And we really see manufacturing as being where it was once labor-intensive, that is, Mm -hmm. you needed people on the assembly line. Now it's people-intensive, where the equipment and automation is sophisticated and there's jobs to be had, although a message to the politicians, it's not about the jobs, it's about the economic competitiveness, but the jobs that we will have will be very much advanced engineering-type jobs on the factory floor. Thank you, Bob, for adding to our introduction. Appreciate that. Let's turn to our next panelist in line, Jeff Jackson, Technology SAP Supply Chain at Deloitte Consulting, LLP. We love having Deloitte on the show, and you're on very often. And Jeff's quote, quoting Albert Einstein, who was also a guest, an honored guest on the show very often. The quote is, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Very telling words. Jeff Jackson, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. So talk to me. I know you picked this Albert Einstein quote with manufacturing and robots and automation in mind. So where are we going with this, Jeff? Yeah, I guess uh, where I was going with this is obviously the automation makes the, the, the process simpler for the human interaction. And it's, it's trying to reduce times to, to bring, a, bring a product to market and to complete the process. But the nature of you know, making a car and manufacturing a car doesn't change. The materials might change the sequence that we put it in and, and how much uh, labor we put in where versus the automation is what shifts. And I guess um, the other point that I would put out is for the, the end consumer, uh, we're trying to make everything connected all the way through the supply chain to the end consumer. 
and we're a very much consumer-driven society. And the example I would put forth is, is my daughter got a, a new bookcase for Christmas, and she loved it. And she's a teenage girl, and she's never put anything together. And the instructions mm. came, and I basically said, okay, you need to put this together. And it was prefabbed and pre-drilled and everything else, and she was able to do it. Now, building a dresser hasn't changed, or a bookshelf hasn't changed, but it That's was made right. so simple that yeah. a teenage girl who's never done it before could just sit down, read the directions, and put it all together. And I think that same thing applies in, in manufacturing with how it's being driven through automation. I want to applaud your daughter because I have built a lot of furniture from Ikea. The directions were not always in real English, and you know what I mean, but we struggled through. I've got dressers, bookcases, bookshelves, you name it, in my office, and I'm proud to, to welcome your daughter to the cadre of those of us females who can build stuff, so tell her I said hello, and I say it with great respect. Let's welcome our fourth and final panelist, Chuck Farris, Director of Manufacturing Solutions Marketing at SAP, and Chuck sent me the following quote. The dominant concern throughout the 20th century was a reconfiguration of our political and social structure. This question has now been usurped by what is the role of technology within it. Welcome, Chuck Farris. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Talk to when me I about hear the quote. About automation overdrive, and, and it sort of invokes somewhat of the same sort of more macro level issues as I think Bob touched on regarding inequality. If you look at the 20th century, we had lots of change. We had geopolitical change with wars. We had social change with you know the role of women and 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 uh, social equality. We had a lot of economic change after going off the gold standard in the 70s. Uh, so I think all of these were were you know structural changes in their own right. And now we're looking at technology's impact on all of those. Technology is driving the wars. Technology is driving, you know, the pure mechanics of economics. Technology is driving our social structures and how we relate to each other and things. So it seems to be a pervasive component of almost all of those topics that were prevalent last year. I had a, a, another quote from Martin Heidegger, a philosopher, who said, mm-hmm. everything we remain – Everywhere we remain unfree and chained to technology, whether we passionately affirm or deny it, we are delivered to the worst possible way when we regard it as something neutral. For this is, makes us utterly blind to the essence of technology. And I think even as philosophers look at you know, more of the theory of technology, they, they underscore and appreciate the significant role uh, that it plays in and of itself. And I, I think we're reaching that point of adoption of it. And as we look toward automation overdrive and expanding it, those are going to be some of the predominant uh, issues beyond the pure technology itself. Thank you very much, Chuck. Great way to round out the top. Now, before we go to break, we have a couple of minutes left. I'm going to ask Mike and then Bob and then Jeff and Chuck what each of you are drinking today or what you wish you were drinking because we are part of our series here called Coffee Break with Game Changers. That's our umbrella show here at SAP. So let's start out with Mike. Mike, uh, remind me, where are you calling from and what's in your cup today or what do you want us to think you're drinking? Go ahead, Mike. Uh, well, I am calling you from Cleveland, Ohio, and I have water in my cup today, but uh, just a quick flashback to um, one of my, my fondest coffee drinking moments, or uh, actually I didn't drink any coffee. I took my first trip as a young businessman to uh, to Belgium and uh, finished up a good dinner with a colleague. was a little jet-lagged, figured I'd just uh, head back to the hotel, and he ordered a coffee, and when the uh, coffee was brought out, it was brought out on a long silver platter with all oh. sorts of candied fruits and chocolates and cookies and oh. 
So I got to watch my friend drink his cup of coffee for about 45 minutes and enjoy every minute of it while I sat there sipping on my water. <laughs> That'll teach you a lesson. It taught me a lot of lessons that day. I bet. I bet it did. You couldn't have ordered one, said make that a double and had them bring another tray? Yeah, I, I probably should have at that point, but I had dug yeah. my heels in and... Uh, until I oh, you purist, you. Well, I hope <laughs> yeah. if you ever go back, you you do it. That's oh, great. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed that coffee since then. Oh, yes. We all feel very relieved. Thank you very much. Bob Parker, IDC, what are you drinking today? Where are you calling from, Bob? I'm calling from Boston, Bonnie, and uh, I guess I'll start with what I wish was in front of me, which is a nice calorie-rich frappuccino, but I'm behaving and have a cup of water in front of me. Oh, my goodness. My, well, I have two because, you know, they don't let me have caffeine on show days, but that's another story. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Jeff Jackson at Deloitte, what are you drinking and where are you calling from? I am calling from Cleveland, and I'm also drinking water. But uh, where I wish I was is a, a moment last October when I was uh, in the south of France on the Mediterranean and just taken an all-night train and had the opportunity to – uh, have a, a breakfast looking out over the Mediterranean with a good friend, uh, taking a break from business and drinking orange juice. So that would be my my wish of where I could be right now if I had a choice. Mm, was the orange juice fresh squeezed? Was it in a special glass? Did it have a mint leaf? Did it have ice cubes? Give me a little more. Paint the no, picture for me. No, but we had me. fresh baguettes. So just fresh baked bread and and, uh, enjoyed the French pastries. So it was nice. Lovely. reason I asked was many, 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 many decades ago, I breakfasted at the the gala brunch at the Williamsburg Inn in Williamsburg, historical colonial Williamsburg, Virginia, many, many years ago. And I remember it was white glove service. It was fantastic. There were silver chafing dishes with all kinds of breakfast foods. And when the waiter served the table, he asked, would you like orange juice? I said, yes. It came in an elegant... uh, a stemmed glass with fresh mint leaves on the side. I will never forget that. That was the equivalent of, I think, Mike, that was the equivalent of your coffee experience for me. Chuck Ferris, last but certainly not least, what are you drinking or tell us a story, Chuck at SAP? Well, I tell you, it seems like everybody is wanting something they don't have. When I heard coffee break, I thought, take a break to drink coffee, but it looks like we're taking a break from coffee. Uh, After (laughs) 40-something years, I decided, what the heck, let me try giving clean living a try. And so I've eliminated caffeine and some other dietary things. So I'm on herbal teas, but uh, adjusting well and enjoying them. But I I, I guess I would like a cup of coffee. But uh, Well, tell me, what's your favorite herbal tea? Let's do that then. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's a, it's a, a... a, a, a brand that actually is, a, is called Rest. So it's uh, got some herbs and it's supposed to, you know, provide calming. And, you know, I think it's ideally decided to, uh, intended to drink at night, but it's, it's a nice, uh, uh, soft sort of flavor to drink through the day as well. It sounds lovely. Just as long as you don't have too much of it before you come on live radio with me, I want that energy. Guess what, everyone? We're going to go to our first break. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, in case you didn't remember that. Today you're listening to us on Biz Buzz with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. I have a great panel, interesting topic, whether you're in the manufacturing industry or not, you know someone who is, or you know somebody who is a manufacturer, or you buy your stuff from a manufacturer. Hello. Our panel today is Mike Yost, president of Mesa International, Bob Parker. 
Parker, Group VP at IDC, Jeff Jackson, Technology SAP Supply Chain at Deloitte, and Chuck Farris, Manufacturing Solutions Marketing at SAP. Okay, here are my instructions. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We're going to be right back. We're right on time, 12.15 here in snowy Wonderland, New York, by the way. And we're going to go into overdrive ourselves for a 30-minute nonstop break-free roundtable with my four guests talking about people versus robots in everything manufacturing. We'll be right back. Brad out. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network business models have a short shelf life today's reality given shifting technologies real-time information and collaboration across time zones competitive advantage increasingly resides in speed to market and in the cloud the bottom line Technology cycles will continue to shorten, making business planning cycles less realistic and strategies less tenable. You need to become a savvy innovator who looks ahead to the next technology trend and its applications to tomorrow's business and industry strategy. BizBuzz with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Biz Buzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Biz Buzz with Game Changers. Welcome back. Our topic today is manufacturing trends, automation in overdrive. We're talking about people and labor, specialized skills in this day of automation, systems going into manufacturing. What about the robots? What role do they play? And let's talk about solutions. My panel is eminently expert at talking about that. So I'm going to kick this off with Mike Yost from Mesa International. And Mike, you told me before the show there's a big difference between software solutions that are appropriate for manufacturers and the distinction we're making is they represent the business, and manufacturing the operations, the process. So let's talk about that distinction, and then I'm going to ask the rest of the panelists to chime in, too. Mike Yost, please go ahead. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we see in all aspects of our life, obviously, is, is the way technology uh, touches all aspects of our society and our personal lives. And so there are often times that, um, you know, a technology provider or um, you know, somebody looking at, you know, from a manufacturer themselves looking at their operations and um, you know, the, the technologies that are out there and, and think that there, there may be uh, something out there that could fit or you see a solution that is um, potentially positioned as being applicable for, for manufacturing companies. Um, but there's a distinction between the, the business of running the manufacturing company and, and how things work outside of the factories and actually being applicable for manufacturing, so working in the operations environment and, and being able to um, deliver value uh, on, the, on the plant floor itself. And so I think that there's a lot of confusion sometimes by a, a high-level marketing message that a, potent, a, a potential solution set 
is applicable for manufacturing um, when, in fact, it may help, um, you know, be it a collaboration tool or, or some other um, high-level business tool, um, but doesn't necessarily go down and work in manufacturing. And we oftentimes see people trying to misapply things down into the manufacturing environment itself, which ends up causing more trouble than, uh, than anybody envisioned. Interesting distinction. Bob Parker, you want to chime in on this one? I'd like to see what your IDC vantage point tells you on this. Sure, and, and I would agree with Mike up to a point. I, and I think um, for your audience, if anyone's interested in kind of the general taxonomy of manufacturing technology, uh, I'll say it for Mike, you should go to Mesa.org. His organization does a tremendous job of helping people understand the technology. But certainly what we're seeing in the industry is a growing influence. So it used to be that a single factory was almost like its own fiefdom, so they made independent mm-hmm. decisions on technology, especially at the programmable logic the programmable logic controller level or the supervisory control and data acquisition level. Those are all kind of independent um, decisions. But what we're seeing folks want to do is think of – their factories as a network because I have to respond much faster to customer demand. So we are seeing this shift in buying influence between what we call OT and IT, operations technology versus information Mm -hmm. technology. But the amount of um, uh, kind of cross-network systems that we're seeing put in place is growing. So it's not the siloed shadow IT anymore at the factory level. We're seeing a real desire at the chief operating officer level to be able to see across the factory network and then incorporate supply chain capabilities because it's really not about what happens in the factory. It's also about the inbound material and the outbound finished goods. So while I agree there's this separation and different appropriateness of the different software uh, choices, the, the um, sphere of influence, if you will, of that operations platform is growing in the industry. Mike, you want to come back and say something before we get Jeff and Chuck on this one? Uh, I, I absolutely agree with, uh, with Bob as far as the, the, the distinctions there. I've seen specifically, I've been in, in uh, a couple of events where we've had some some um, technology companies talking about things like big data or talking about things like collaboration, talking about mobility platforms, things like that. And uh, the, the recommendation coming from, from the folks in that environment is to, as an example on the mobility platform side, to uh, just go ahead and replatform everything on their mobility platform, uh, rewrite apps and things like that from the, from the plant floors perspective. Um, which uh, you know uh, I think is bad advice um, and doesn't um, doesn't serve the plant. Uh, but certainly, the things that Bob talked about from an enterprise level and the importance of the supply chain and materials and feeding into that is is absolutely spot on. Um, but you can't just take a, a square peg uh, approach to, to mm-hmm. shove things down into the manufacturing environment. Thank you, Mike. Jeff Jackson, I want to get you into this Deloitte's perspective, and then we're going to, going to take automation in a slightly different direction. Jeff, on what Mike and uh, Bob have been talking about? Yeah, no, I um, appreciate both of their comments, and, you know, I, can, I agree with the distinction, but the, the whole integration that connects, it, we're seeing the connection between the end customer all the way to the factory floor, mm-hmm. and there's, there's automation through the IT systems of all of those decisions along the path. And it, and it all factors down to then what gets produced and the schedule for production on the factory floor and where that gets shipped to for logistics to, 
you know, kind of have the predictive technologies of what needs to be placed where to get to the end consumer. So um, I, I do see a tie together for the whole system, you know, the supply chain from order all the way to delivery, as well as the, the supply chain for procurement and filling in the factory floors. And I think the integration of all of those systems tying into the factory is key. Um, so. Okay. Thank you. Chuck Ferris, SAP, need you in this conversation. What do you think? Sure. The thing that comes to my mind when I when I hear a lot of these topics about what is you know what's the sort of distinction or role between the different types of technologies plays and Bob's talking about it is all about sort of what is that migration and I guess the thought that comes to my mind is you know let's be careful to look at robots as a thing you know Google's been in the news you know they're making all these acquisitions and we think about you know automated cars and all these kinds of things but in reality you know many of the things that Mike are talking about we're doing now we've got to get rid of paper we have to have some sort of digital process and that is a core part of automation yes a, a final replacement of a robot is but I think a lot of the things we're doing right now are on this continuum called you know automation curve and and leading to this sort of and are necessary for this automation overdrive so people in the audience should, you know, take into consideration the value of those things you're doing right now are really part of this big automation movement. Okay. If, Thank if you, I could Chuck. Jump in Except, one, one, yeah, please, one, go one, ahead. One, one more comment, Bonnie, if I may. Yeah. Yeah, There's two, three, go ahead. All more the barrier. The other, just to build on Mike's point, I think the other distinction to make is sometimes – the vendor community wants to put manufacturing in a single bucket. And let's let's be real that we're talking about toothpaste and aircraft, right? So mm-hmm. it's a very different proposition. The systems I need if I'm building a 787 versus putting Crest toothpaste in a tube. So the other thing I think people need to be aware of is the nuances between the different segments of manufacturing, whether it's acid intensive, demand intensive, engineering intensive, or technology intensive, can be very different propositions. Okay. Anybody else on that one? I want to go in a slightly different direction, but I don't want to cut anybody off. Anything else, Mike, on that one? No. You good? Okay. Chuck, I want to talk about, we started out, I talked about our people going to be seeding even more jobs at C-E-D-I-N-G to robots. Let's talk about, uh, you sent me this, this comment before the show, Chuck. I think this will make a good point for everybody to discuss. Replacing labor makes people even more important and more challenging to manage. There's a lot of meat on the bones there. Why don't you start this part of the discussion off? Chuck Ferris at SAP, please. Sure. I, th- I think there's a, a point to be predicated that we won't expound on in the moment, maybe later in discussion, is about, you know, what are we really talking about with this with this job replacement and automation? And there's many issues mm-hmm. around growing inequality, as Bob talked about, you know, labor issues. But, it, but there, we certainly see some skills displacement uh, of labor. We do see automation, not just robots, but automation reducing the number of people, you know, reducing total people, those types of things. The interest, and, and, and that is an interesting point because historically this productivity enhancement has supposedly kept up with job creation and those type things. And now we see inequality growing and it's just not keeping up. But let's say that that does happen and, and, and that people do start to get displaced. In my mind, it creates two very interesting challenges. Obviously, it creates a challenge for the person who's sort of getting de-skilled out of a job. They must say, hey, how can I become more competitive? How can I transition my skills as rapidly as as this economy is transitioning out from under me. But it also brings an interesting perspective to management. Those people who remain up, increase their skills, uh, are obviously, it's harder for management to attract them, to retain them. And and there's obviously, you know, a, a smaller amount of them. So it's, you know, 
each of their performance is more critical. So it brings management a challenge on those top performing, which is now their, you know, the majority of their employee base. But it also brings a challenge on managing that lower end of the employment base. There will still be people that have jobs that are not replaced by uh, robots, but they're going to have to compete on the same sort of manufacturing flexibility that Bob was talking about. So when we look at what we call a zero-hour workforce, you know, we look at a flexible workforce that, you know, is brought in on demand. They must be trained real-time. They must be supervised without the company culture. And there must be some sort of continuity between, you know, the processes and things. So I think the management challenge of managing the high end and, and also managing the inevitable flexibility and, and the lack of continuity of the lower end of that employees is, is uh, an interesting thing. Thank you very much. Mike Yost, I'm interested in Mesa's perspective on this. And tell us just a little bit more about what Mesa does for this industry, please. Sure, absolutely. Um, just quickly, uh, Mesa International is a 22-year-old um, not-for-profit industry association. Our goal is to work with um, the entire community, so the solution provider community, be that software providers or systems integrators, uh, consultants, as well as the manufacturers themselves. So we have uh, we have members in 40 plus countries around the world, um, and the goal is to get together and educate and share best practices on how and why you use you know, modern information technologies and solutions in in their manufacturing operations. So, okay. um, so with regard to to what Chuck said, as far as uh, people becoming more important, there's absolutely our perspective is uh, that is spot on. Um, you know, and a lot of the things that we see sort of um, coming back to my initial quote about, um, you know, the, the, the rapid advances of uh, the changes in technology and such, uh, we see that the issues facing many of the, the member companies that we have within Mesa are much more around uh, education and operations and, and organizational type of issues than they are around technology itself. So the people and the challenges that Chuck just brought up on, on managing those people, even getting people to talk across business silos and to be able to understand, uh, you know, technology is not just a, a, you know, an IT function any longer, um, but how does the, uh, the you know, historically solutions are bought potentially in, in silos by the, the um you know, the departments that need them and such. Um, and, and really that is a challenge as the technology gets more pervasive. Um, I agree with, with what Chuck, Chuck said as far as the importance of the people involved in, in being able to support these technologies and use them completely across the, uh, the organization, top to bottom and, and side to side. Thank you. Jeff Jackson, Deloitte, or Bob Parker, IDC, who wants to add to this? I know we've got a lot more to discuss on this topic. Well, I, this is Bob. I think it's it's interesting and telling to mention that the largest market for robotics last year was China. So this isn't entirely about labor arbitrage either. I agree with Chuck that it's not about jobs. I, I think uh, political uh, statements aside, it is about competitiveness, but also about the the market demand. I think Jeff was talking about that earlier. That you know more customized products that need to be delivered faster, you need this sort of advanced, flexible automation to do that. So as I said in my opening comments, manufacturing has gone from being labor-intensive to people-intensive. Okay. Jeff? Hi, this is, yeah, this is Jeff Jackson. Um, I guess the thing I would add is maybe from a, from a skills and people point of view is, is we're really projecting shortage, shortages of the skilled workers and, um, you know, particularly areas around science and technology. And you look at, you know, different types of manufacturing, 
one of the biggest challenges is how do we get the skilled workers that, that we're going to need to run these new operations and processes and, and drive the efficiency. So, you know, well, there will be displacement, the management challenge of getting the right people trained and then retaining them with the right skill set to remain competitive is, is a challenge that, that companies are going to face, manufacturers are going to face, but it's a great opportunity for the workforce that's willing to get the training and stay current on technology. Thank you. I want to make a comment. We did a couple of shows on our Coffee Break series last year about manufacturing trends, and I remember a comment was brought up by one of my panelists who said that their time will come, and perhaps it already is, when getting a job on the factory floor will be an exciting career move for many people who will be proud to say at a cocktail party or at family Christmas dinner, I work for such and such manufacturer. I'm on the shop floor. I've got an iPad. I'm making decisions. I'm right there in the flow. I'm part of making things happen. Are we seeing that excitement yet with automation at the people level, not the replace with robot level? Anybody want to answer me, bring me up to date before I go in another direction here? Uh, this, this is Mike. I'd, I'd be glad to jump in, and, and I, would, yeah. I would only say that I, would, I wish we were there. Um, okay. Uh, we certainly don't certainly don't see that that yet from uh, from our membership and the folks that we we talk with. Um, you know the um, the reality is that that uh, you know investments in the actual manufacturing uh, environment itself in the plants themselves are you know without a business driver like Bob was just talking about the the uh, the, the change from the consumers and and the demand and the the changes that that drives that, that puts complexity into manufacturing, um, you know, so do regulatory compliance and things like that that drive an investment in the actual tools uh, down into manufacturing. Um, but outside of that, there are a lot of a lot of manufacturers that are still struggling to justify putting investments mm. in down at the plant floor level, and you have a lot of cases where um, you know people. Lead a dual life. They may be all sorts of uh, techie and, and uh, you know mm-hmm. on their on their high tech stuff when they're out of the office, but when they come into the into the uh, into the factory, they sort of step back uh, into uh, not so high tech age. Just old factory, just Charlie Chaplin. Not quite, though, not quite. Yes, we used a quote from the movie. I uh, I don't remember what the movie was where he was. Yes, yes, we know that one. Okay, anybody else on that point before I move in another direction? Well, this is this is Bob about. I think four years ago, maybe five years ago, we did a survey asking how important do you think manufacturing is to your nation's stability and ranked very high, number one. And then we also asked, would you recommend a young relative go into the manufacturing industry? I think it was one level above uh, waste management um, in terms of the the ranking of possible jobs. But we ran the same survey about a year ago, and it had moved up. It wasn't near the top, but it had moved up uh, a number of places. So I think perceptions are changing. There's some interesting things going on in education. Europe has a concept called a teaching factory, much like the medical Mm -hmm. profession has teaching hospitals. Uh, And I think uh, with the the technology and science education efforts going on uh, in this country, I think you're seeing seeing that turn slowly, albeit slowly, uh, but you're seeing that turn a bit. Well, what is a teaching factory? I'm intrigued by that. What, what does it look like? What do they, what's the point and who gets to be a student at the, the teaching factory? 
Well, it's it's part of the German German Industry 4.0 effort, and essentially what it is is a working factory that's on the university campus, much like there's a working hospital on campus, and they they produce things under contract. And the engine now these are engineering students. The engineering students mm-hmm. uh, get to do things like design tooling, set up machines. Uh, uh, choose robotics, and it's just the same premise as a uh, as a doctor in residence. It's a manufacturing professional in residence that um, works on the at the teaching factory. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Anybody else want to chime in on the teaching factory? Any other information perspectives? Anybody? Okay, we're good to go. I want to move in the direction of customer demand and how automation gives a factory flexibility to be more responsive because ultimately what consumer wants to be told, it's out of stock, the manufacturer is at the end of the run, they can't provide it, we don't know when it's coming. Who wants to hear that today? We want to be happy, we want to be satisfied, we want to be heard and respected right now because we're mobile and we are controlling a customer, as a customer, we control the brands of the people we like to buy from. So, Bob Parker, this was one of your talking points you sent me. You said modern automation provides unprecedented flexibility in responding to customer demand. Now, we all know there's a long chain of events that happens before the customer sees the item on the shelf and the manufacturer says, yes, we're set up in supply chain and we're set up in factory production time to bring this item to that shelf somewhere. So, how flexible is this? You say it's unprecedented. Give me a little bit of uh, detail here, and then I'm going to ask the rest of the panelists to jump in, please. Yeah, well, we're heading towards unprecedented flexibility, and your your okay. demanding consumer, by the way, Bonnie, is also much more informed. They can look up your competitor's yes. products. They can look at where else can they get the competitor's product. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only are they more demanding, they're more informed and therefore more fickle. Um, but what we talk about a lot in the research is how do you create a resilient organization? And the academic de- definition of resilience is the ability to adapt to changing circumstances while maintaining your central purpose. So a lot of the systems on the factory floor are moving towards this capability of being able to adapt to what the market is buying. Um, you know, we have a long history in manufacturing of this. It's called lean manufacturing. That was all about mm-hmm. Um, calibrating your resources to the customer demand, but it was at a much very at a much higher level. Today, we're on a path uh, with things like additive manufacturing, 3D printing, um, the more flexible robotics to be able to do a uh, buy one build one uh, proposition. We're not there yet. Uh, but uh, given the given the price curve, what these what this equipment costs to invest in uh, really creates a lot of options for the manufacturer to serve that demanding and informed consumer. Thank you, Mike Yost. What do you see at, at Mesa? What are you looking at in terms of this flexibility? As Bob said, are we there? Are we getting there? When? Well, the. Uh the history of Mesa, we, uh, um, we we were founded as the Manufacturing Execution Systems Association, and over time have evolved for our, our, our the execution in our name changed to Enterprise Solutions, so we're the Manufacturing Enterprise ah. Solutions. But, but the uh, the goal, the stated goal of Manufacturing Execution Systems from day one was to provide that flexibility to align um, align production with customer demand. And so, um, so yes, we there we're, we're more capable of doing it, um, much more capable of doing it than we were in the past. We're getting better at doing it, 
Um, and I think a lot of it has to do as well with, with having a vision and also the, you know, the evolution of the technologies themselves. As I mentioned earlier, that uh, they used to hold us back. Um, I remember a day when there was the there was a set of commercials where a, uh, a guy wanted to buy a car, a Ferrari or something like that, and um, wanted to match it to the color of his wife's shoes and then her purse, and they show the robot stopping to paint and you know, <laughs> as she makes up her mind. And as a plant floor guy, that drove me nuts because that's nowhere near reality. Um, yeah. But that kind of that kind of vision ha- has been out there and has been driving us, and the solutions and the technologies are absolutely aligning to make us much more flexible, and that's why people invest in in the plant floor systems to get that, that type of flexibility. And, and, and I bet you wish you could get a robot to go out and buy the wife a new purse and a new <laughs> pair of shoes to match the car you want to sell her, right? Yeah, that would be, that would be just fine. <laughs> and I wanted to make a comment. You said you went in the, the meaning of the letters M-E-S-A, MESA, from E was execution to enterprise. I was going to say, at least you don't have to change the monogram on the towels in the executive bathroom. So there you go. That's very, very important. Jeff Jackson at Deloitte, any comment on this unprecedented flexibility from supply chain all the way down to the shelf where the the informed and smart and demanding consumer will say yes? Yeah, no, I'd like to to continue on with the automotive example of seeing a lot of effort put in by the automotive manufacturers and in the whole order to delivery of allowing the customer visibility back into the production process. And so instead of going to a a dealer and basically picking the car that's there based on the dealer's best guess as to what the consumer wants, you know, allowing the consumer to go in and order and lay out within given parameters, here's all the options you can have, here's all of the the different parts you can add, the the flexibility that is built into the robotics already, and then let them track all the way through the production cycle until the car is shipped and sent to their local dealer for them to pick up. And so it's exciting to see that connection from the factory floor to the consumer with with the ability to really customize what they want. And there's not a tremendous amount of flexibility there, but there's at least enough options and flexibility that it's it's exciting to see the the options and the and the delighting the customer of them getting exactly what they want instead of, you know, the closest thing that they had on the dealer lot. What do you have to settle for? Very good point. Chuck Farris, comments? Well I think all of us are, are fundamentally in this basic business. So I think we're all in violent agreement about the responsiveness and, and, and what you can do with the organizations. I mean, you know, my company sells the technology. Bob helps customers understand what they need to do. Mike understand, helps them understand their best practices. Uh, Jeff's company helps them, you know, actually accomplish that. So I think we're all in sort of violent um, agreement on that sort of perspective. But I, I think when we talk about demand, there's an interesting perspective that comes back to this job thing. Uh, you know, there's always been this, theory that uh, increased productivity brought along a better standard of living. Then, of course, you start to ask, well, what point does it reach a tipping point where instead of the rate of customer demand, do we have aggregate demand? Is there, can our employees, you know, afford our products? And at what point does that become a tipping point? Uh, We see, of course, Japan and China with not enough domestic consumption. We saw Henry Ford that, you know, arbitrarily out of nowhere raised the price to an incredible wage at the time because he said, look, I want my employees to, to be able to do this. So there's a there's an interesting connection between the, the sort of concept of demand and, and what it means to this inequality, what it means to these jobs and job skills. I think a lot of people, there, there was actually a, um, an operations blog thing I put on my, my Twitter this morning 
that was comparing some quotes from the former Karzar of America was giving a, the government giving a lot of examples about you know how uh, all these jobs are created in automotive and all that sorts of things. And when in reality, a lot of those were you know much lower skilled jobs. America became the low cost manufacturing place, which was really hurting employees, which was the workers, which was his point. But then it was contrasted with Harley Davidson, who you know stayed in a high cost, high labor union. And they said, look, we've got to completely redesign the process in order to justify this higher cost, but we're still going to make a successful model of that. Europe is the same way. They've improved their processes and their quality such that they justify an, an otherwise higher level um, labor structure. So I think that shows that you know, even amongst all of this, that's the kind of value it brings. It really allows you know, to pay employees more, to justify the value, to enable them to bring more value. And I think the article, you know, the latter part of last week from New York Times on Harley-Davidson, how they, you know, built a completely new plant, engineered it from the ground up. And ironically, they don't have any true robots. They're people that are constantly looking for improvements of fractions of a second. Uh, they get a new motorcycle, enter the line every 80 seconds, and the person has no idea what the next task they have in front of them. So the type of responsiveness that they're talking about really has a big impact on potential value creation. That's very, very exciting. You know what? We're, what's exciting is we have four minutes till break, and we will take a break before the final round, which will be the crystal ball predictions. So I'm going to go back through the rest of the guests and ask if anybody wants to talk about the Harley example. It's very exciting. Any comments, uh, Mike or Jeff or Bob? I think, Chuck, you would, you would agree with – this is Bob – with the Harley-Davidson example uh, in line with what Jeff was saying that ability to walk into a Harley dealership and order the exact configuration of motorcycle you want goes back to that factory investment in New York uh, as well. Is that correct, Chuck? Absolutely. In fact, that article talked about, you know, before they had to try hard, it took 18 months to get a Harley, and now part of their success is, you know, being able to turn that around in a couple of weeks, which absolutely drives that demand. Agreed. Anybody else on the Harley example? Yeah, this is Mike. I would just say that, you know, the um, back to the business drivers, when, when a company takes a look at that and says we are going to compete here, we are going to make this happen here, we have different, um, you know, pressures and challenges. Um, so how are we going to attack the problem? How are we going to get after it? Um, you know, when you have the manufacturing flexibility tied to the actual business driver and, and um, you know, then, Great things can happen, and that's a perfect illustration of how the the responsiveness and the, the tools and the, the people and the systems can all come together to deliver value for the business from the plant level. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a textbook perfect example of, of how these, these things can work. And we love perfect examples. And I hear somebody in the background. Who wants to add? Uh, yeah, this is Jeff. Um, yeah. I just wanted to emphasize this is going to become more and more important that we need to see more examples like the Harley-Davidson story. Mm-hmm. As we're looking at, you know, the global economy, there's there's wage parity going on, right? So Japan used to be low cost, and now they're not. And China is very quickly moving in that direction. And so, you know, it, and then there's other countries with, you know, different political systems for patent control as far as as trapping your money in the country and needing to get it out. So I think more and more we're just seeing the value of the automation and getting productivity where you're doing business, and it's not chasing the low-cost resources just to chase those resources. It really is how do I get efficiency and productivity out of my, out of my production facilities and, and out of the process 
you know, get the get the speed to the end customer. So I think that the demand for that is only going to continue to grow over the next five years. Thank you. You know what? You've all earned a break. We're going to go right now about 30 seconds ahead of schedule. I'm speaking today with Mike Yost at Mesa. We know what the E stands for. Bob Parker at IDC, Jeff Jackson at Deloitte, and Chuck Farris at SAP. This is Biz Buzz with Game Changers. We're talking today about manufacturing trends, automation in overdrive. Is the technology as disruptive as you thought it was? Are jobs changing? Is the flexibility leading to customer satisfaction and getting everything they want there yet? Not quite, but... But we're well on the way. When we come back, I'm going to have my four panelists. Well, during the break, you're all going to go out to the garage, the boat shed, the trunk of the car, the attic, wherever you keep the crystal ball, and you're going to find it, polish it off. And I'm going to ask the four of you in the same original order we started, Mike, Bob, Jeff, and Chuck, if we had this conversation five years from today in January, February 2019, what would we be saying about automation, manufacturing, Business versus operations, robots versus people. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back. Don't even think of missing the roundtable at the end. Prediction segment. Brad out. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Business models have a short shelf life. Today's reality, given shifting technologies, real-time information, and collaboration across time zones, competitive advantage increasingly resides in speed to market and in the cloud. The bottom line? Technology cycles will continue to shorten, making business planning cycles less realistic and strategies less tenable. You need to become a savvy innovator who looks ahead to the next technology trend and its applications to tomorrow's business and industry strategy. BizBuzz with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Biz Buzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Biz Buzz with Game Changers. Here we are. We're talking about the buzz in the biz world, talking about manufacturing trends, automation in overdrive today. It's time for the crystal ball round. I'm going to ask my four esteemed guests to look ahead five years from today. If we met on this same exact topic on live radio, and I hope we do, we'll even put it in the calendar after the show, what would we be talking about? Would we be even talking about automation? Would the word be the same? Would we be talking about robots? Would we be talking about overdrive, the differences between business solutions and operation solutions. Why don't you kick this off for me, Mike Yost from Mesa. I'll give you a minute and a half. Go. Well, thank you, Bonnie. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I think you know, the question about technology, I'm sorry, terminology and things like that is, uh, is very real. We may not even be using the same uh, terminology. Um, I think that the baseline of, of acceptance of technology will be much higher than it is today and, and um, several of the things that we're staring at today, wondering how we're going to do, will be will be second nature to us. So, I think we'll have a much higher baseline of adoption, um, the educational awareness, the capabilities of the solutions themselves, and the manufacturer's ability to implement that will be much higher. 
Um, if I can look at it from a, a MESA organizational perspective, mm-hmm. I think that, that our membership will continue to evolve. Um, we've seen throughout the years a shift from almost an exclusive operations um, membership with very few IT people represented to now it's almost a 60-40 split where we have more IT folks than, uh, than operations folks. And um, we've, we've seen and continue to see evolution of the organization to more of, of a combined type of uh, organizational structure, some organizations having a, a manufacturing IT organization. Bob mentioned just a few minutes ago the distinction between uh, operations technology versus information technology. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to continue to drive. We'll see the organizations change, um, but all towards adoption of, of these technologies and understanding how to use them. Thank you very, very much, Mike Yost from Mesa. Bob Parker, IDC, what do you see five years from today? Bob, I know you have a good view to the future. Talk to me. I don't have my crystal ball, but I have my magic eight ball, so I'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> so I think what we'll be talking about in 2019 is how – this automation in overdrive is transforming value chains. I don't want to say transformed. I don't think it will be done by then. Uh, and it will be value chains that are digitally executed and be characterized by extreme postponement. Let me give you a quick example to illustrate what I mean. Um, Nike is working on a machine or has a machine called a FlyNet machine, and the, the thought is, with a single thread, I can build an athletic shoe. And today there's about 23 sewing operations involved in building a sneaker, which is why it's done in China and Vietnam. But the vision is I walk into my Dick Sporting Goods, I tell the salesperson what I want to do uh, with the sneakers, what I do in the sneakers, what color I want, and it will basically be come back in an hour and in the back room with the fly knit machine, we will build your pair of sneakers. So if you think about how centralized, the manufacturing is today uh, and managing all the logistics to get it to market, it becomes turned on its head in that it's about getting the materials you need uh, close to those individualized machines that are very close to the source of demand. Uh, And it won't be done in 2019, but we will marvel how far we've come in the last five years. Ah, I like that. I like the marvel. And we talked, somebody mentioned delighting the customer. I think we will all be marveling and delighted when we see that kind of progress. Thank you, Bob Parker. Jeff Jackson at Deloitte, what do you see five years ahead? Please, Jeff. Um, I I see the the rate of technology introduction is going to continue to increase, and, and I wholeheartedly agree. We're going to see... You know, new new machines and new new capabilities, and new materials that are being used for the manufacturing process just continue to increase exponentially over the next five years. I think with that, the the amount of data and and computer information that we're going to be gathering and putting at the hands of the the employees all the way through the supply chain to the shop floor is going to be continue to grow just exponentially and the decision-making to be, you know, flexible on what am I producing where and where do I need to ship it to to have it ready and predict where the, what the customer demand is going to be uh, is going to be, become even more important. So we've got the, the push to I'm going to make it right at the customer site on demand, but then there's other, other products where we're getting more and more predictive because we learn so much about our end consumer that we actually can – can say, yes, there is going to be someone in, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, that's going to break down in a car on I-71, and they're going to need to be a replacement, uh, you know, uh, you know, two replacement tires or, or a, a new uh, uh, 
battery and have mm-hmm. that close to close on site where they're going to need it. So I think the predictive capabilities are going to continue to increase. And then I guess the third item I'd bring out is I think we're going to continue to struggle with the, the skilled labor force, and I think it's going to lag the demand over the next five years. And it's mm. really going to be the, the challenge that we're going to have to figure out is how do we keep skills current with technology so that we can get the full benefit out of the, the new inventions. Great point. I hope the right people are listening and take note of that one. Thank you so much. Chuck Ferris, SAP, finish me up with predictions. What do you see five years from today? Chuck, go. Well, first of all, I think the, the, the rate will dramatically increase the technology adoption and application. The, the computing revolution has been around since you know the early 90s, but we had China and India entering the labor force, which suppressed global wages. Now that they're starting to equalize, we have sort of a double wave. We have you know, technology that's been around for a long time, and now we have lots of economic drivers. I think that's going to take us in five years through the, the same sort of curve, maturity curve we saw with the Internet. First, we were talking about browsers, where it was, technology was 100% of our focus. Then, you know, five years later, we were talking about this new economic model where cash flow didn't really matter, and yeah, browsers and associated technologies were the enabler. And then another five years, we sort of had a much more somber view and said, look, it's back to the same business challenges, and yes, this is important, and yes, we're building new businesses around this, but it really gets back to a business-focused discussion. I think we're at that same point. Now we're talking about robots. We're talking about Google and, you know, future robots. I think five years from now are going to be exactly where Bob describes it. We are going to be talking about, you know, somewhat of a euphoric impact on the business model. And I think it will go through a, you know, a range of continued sobriety where it's just to talk about the business model. You know, and five years later, technology will just be a, a background implicit part of it. Thank you very much. Great job, all of you. I have a quick question for Mike before I do my one-minute closing. Mike, do you think in five years from today people will be excited to have a relative who is working in a highly automated factory on the shop floor saying, wow, what a great job, yes or no? Yes. Good. Wonderful. Okay, I'm doing my <laughs> doing my predictions now. Coffee break with Game Changers. Tomorrow, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern, I'll be on with the topic, social media compliance. Is it time for regulation? That's a good one. Startup Focus with Game Changers, Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific. We'll be talking about the impact of startups in the retail industry. Very exciting show. And BizBuzz with Game Changers next Tuesday. We'll be back here at 9 a.m. Pacific, achieving and sustaining breakthrough results with real-time business operations. And here's a heads up. We have a brand new series coming in March called The Future of Business with Game Changers. Working on the calendar right now and we're going to see a return to SAP Game Changers Radio of, let's see, Financial Excellence with Game Changers is coming back in March and HR Trends with Game Changers is coming back. We'll be on the air five times a week live. Yes, thank you to my very special guests. Thank you all for your wisdom, your expertise, your camaraderie. Mike Yost at Mesa, Bob Parker at IDC, Jeff Jackson at Deloitte Chuck Farris at SAP, and shout-outs to Susan Walker for sponsoring the show, Tom Flanagan, great tweets, and thanks for your help with getting everything together. Brad and the Business Channel team at Voice America, hugs. I'm Bonnie DeGram. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game-changer today. Signing off from snowy winter wonderland New York. We survived. See you tomorrow right here on the Business Channel with Coffee Break with Game Changers. Bye-bye.
Thanks again for tuning in to BizBuzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. We'll be right back.